Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live with an extra special guest today. I am thrilled to welcome Kurt Simic, who is the Indiana University Foundation President Emeritus. Uh, and I'm just going to flat out say it. Kurt has more advancement experience than anybody we've ever hosted <laughs> on this podcast. Welcome, Kurt. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Brent. Well, that goes with age. Those experiences just a, a symptom of age. Well, uh, many have counted you as a mentor, cited you as a mentor, and um, I just can't wait to to take a walk down memory lane today, but also maybe get your perspective here on the future uh, as well. And, and so with that, we've been um, asking our guests to start by just sharing a little bit about your own higher education journey. I might even say, take me back to junior year of high school. Where were you? Who was that, Kurt? Uh, and ultimately, what informed your own path to higher education? Well, that is a long ways back. Well, I, uh, my dad was a steel worker in Gary, Indiana, and uh, there were nine children. And so they weren't sure they could feed us if another depression hit. And so they bought a little farm about 35 miles out. We were in a little town, Couts, Indiana. Uh, when I graduated from high school, there were 21 in my class. Uh, so you go back to my junior year, I guess there were 21 at that time too. And uh, I had the good fortune of having a wonderful English teacher. And one of the things uh, she encouraged me to do after I'd been accepted to IU, I don't think I could get in anymore, by the way. They wouldn't, they wouldn't have me. But uh, uh, she said, why don't you try summer school and see if that would work, help you to help make, you make the transition to college. So I graduated on a Saturday night and Monday I was in school at IU. Uh, which was wonderful uh, in retrospect, and it didn't take long to figure out it was wonderful. And I moved into the only residence hall that was open, and there were two groups in that residence hall. One were the athletes who were trying to stay eligible for the various sports, and then there was a Russian language institute, which was over my head, and it really was a, was a, a harbinger of, of, of the world impact that IU has. IU now on Bloomington campus teaches more than 70 foreign languages, which is more than any country uh, or any, uh, or any uh, a college. And what was going on is the State Department had approached IU and said, we're going to have to deal with Russia, so we'd better teach people how to speak the language. And so they created this institute. And so we had those two groups of people that I was living among. And, and I, 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 uh, I uh, really ended up on the jock side of things <laughs> because I seemed to connect a little bit more. And among the people that I met were a bunch of gymnasts. And they said, well, why don't you move into Wright Quad in the fall and this place, Dodd's house. And what that gave me was access to uh, their biggest activity, which was the Little 500, a bike race uh, that the movie Breaking Away was about. And its purpose was to raise money for working students who were going through school. And that's where I got my first look at philanthropy. My family was poor enough that we really didn't have uh, much philanthropic opportunity. And so it took uh, that particular exposure here at IU to, to open the door. In fact, uh, we, were, we were struggling enough that uh, I became an altar boy so, because I didn't have any money to put in the collection plate. <laughs> that's, and that's really the truth. And so when I came here and I got involved in the bike race, uh, that's what we, got me started on the, uh, on the road to uh, what was a career. And I didn't know it at the time. 
I had no idea what, what this was all going to be. So I became a bike rider. Uh, and then as a senior, I was president of the student organization. And then there they hired me and it started the philanthropic journey. I love that. And it's amazing. The, the little 500 was cited by Matthew Ewing. It was cited by JT Forbes, mm-hmm. who was just named uh, the CEO of the um, Indiana University Foundation yesterday. So this uh, really neat to see the importance of um, creating exposure to philanthropy for students as a real source of, of talent in, in leadership um, in this sector. Um, and, and when was it in your experience with the, um, I also just have to say in, in a small world aside, uh, during the pandemic, my family and I bought an RV, Kurt, and we ended up spending 10 months with our three boys traveling the country, basically outrunning the pandemic. And uh, I was doing the podcast from a little setup in the back of the RV. Uh, but one of our first stops on that trip was in Coutts, Indiana. You're uh, because oh, no. I swear, I swear, we have oh, a very no. dear, a very dear friend, uh, uh, the Martin family. Uh, I think Mary Martin is a teacher uh, there. Her son, uh, Jess, is a good friend of ours. And so we actually parked our RV in front of their house in Coutts, Indiana. So I know exactly uh, what you're talking about. And for those listening, it's sort of one of those towns without a stoplight. And, uh, you know, you, you could drive right through. And uh, that's very similar to where I grew up in, in Northeast Iowa. And so mm-hmm. I, can, I can very much relate to that. Um, it's one thing to be a student leader and to get exposure to something like the Little 500 and have it connect with your own family's experience. Um, in supporting access to, to higher education, um, it's a different thing to then decide, I want that to be my career path, especially in my understanding as you studied physical education, you're, you're, you're not necessarily going down um, uh, an academic path that could lead you into what was at the time, I think, a pretty nascent professional fundraising industry. And so just tell me a little bit about the transition from student to young professional uh, and ultimately what... Um, what your first role was? Well, in some ways it was accidental. The, uh, I, I was hired to be the director of the student foundation, which was advisor to the organization, about 300 student leaders who were very engaged in, in putting together the pieces of, of uh, what, what would raise maybe, oh, $25,000 a year uh, given out in scholarships, which was, which was significant in those days because a whole semester's uh, tuition in those days was not $150 the whole semester. So a, a scholarship of $200 was, was pretty impressive. So I started out in that, but then uh, Bill Armstrong, who was really launched my career by seeing something in me, me that I didn't know was there, uh, just asked me to begin to do some of the annual fundraising. And in those days, we were, we were doing just general uh, uh, mailings out and hoping for one and a half percent response or whatever it might have been in those days. And, and he decided that we should do constituency-based fundraising built around the various schools, the professional schools in particular. So I got the law school, I got the school of dentistry, I got the school of nursing, and I got uh, the school of law in Indianapolis. We had two law schools and still do, too. And basically what we did is we formed uh, our presentation based around those schools and their needs. But 
the School of uh, Medicine was doing county by county solicitations. And uh, the man who was doing that had retired as a major executive in the publishing world. And he decided that that would make a lot more sense. So I took a hint from him and we organized our, our, uh, our fundraising for the law school, the, the one that was in Bloomington, in a county by county basis. So I learned, first of all, you have to be able to have a case statement that makes sense. And I had the good sense to find writers who knew what they were doing. And then uh, I was out on the road calling on people to ask if they would be county chairman for uh, the law school in, in their county. And, and it was, uh, it was uh, not an even road. <laughs> Some people were very responsive and ready to do it. And in other counties, we struggled to find somebody who would do that. But of course, that's what we do when we do capital campaigns or anything else. We, we get out there and we try to recruit from our constituency that is already engaged, donors basically, and see if there's a way that they will, will step in and help us. And so that came along and, and it really did give me exposure. And about that time, I hired a guy from the Student Foundation named Kent Dove. And Kent Dove has written more books about development that are used across the country and across the industry than anybody else. He's since passed away. But I discovered him in the Student Foundation and he became my assistant director of, of annual giving. Bill gave me the, the latitude to do that. And, and we expanded uh, uh, from there. And uh, uh, when we did the first, go ahead, you were gonna say- well, I was just gonna ask her, you mentioned going county by county. I mean, I, we've done a hundred episodes of this podcast. And you might be the first person who's ever said the word county mm -hmm. as it relates to a fundraising strategy. Mm -hmm. It almost sounds like political organizing. Um, and maybe that was unique to the time, or maybe that's the kind of grassroots thing that we need to get back to. Um, but it sounds like it hadn't been done before. Well, uh, as I say, the School of Medicine uh, did it and was doing it. And it was with card files and names and going in and having meetings and conversations. And I guess it was a lot like political fundraising. You try to identify people that have some interest. Our denominator, of course, is where they got their degree. And what we were trying to do is, is make that happen. I also had the opportunity to take some of those deans over the period of years uh, on tour too. And that was good because most deans, uh, even today, don't have a lot of exposure to fundraising. And so it was really interesting to get them ex uh, a, a bit of experience. And that led to me getting a territory in our first capital campaign. So I had a bit of Indiana in our first capital campaign, which was the sesquicentennial campaign, which uh, the sesquicentennial, of course, was 1970. And so I was working in that, in that field, uh, in that uh, vineyard, if you will, from about 1968, something like that, 67, as well as uh, doing the Student Foundation uh, program. By the way, back to the Student Foundation. Our alumni base of giving, with, which is like six or 700,000 uh, alumni, uh, is about 16 or 17%, which is not peculiar for a public university of our size. But the members of the Student Foundation, which number over the years about 20,000, their participation is at 68%, 68%, which is just huge. It's four times what anybody else is doing. And back to your early comment, it is giving students an exposure to the importance of philanthropy in their lives. And uh, I recall very clearly Two women came in to see me, uh, students, undergraduates, and said, there's something going on at Penn State called the Dance-a-Thon. 
And they said, we'd like to do that. We think that'd be fun. And I said, well, that sounds great to me. It's philanthropy. And so let's, let's uh, figure out how to do it. I said, what do you need? And they said, we don't have any money. <laughs> so we need a little money to get started. And, uh, so we gave them $15,000 and it has just blossomed into this wonderful uh, dance marathon that's generating three, four, $5 million a year. Uh, for our children's hospital, which is just wonderful. Now we don't have a fix yet on how that that translates into giving to the university as we do with the student foundation, but it can't be anything but helpful uh, to to uh, to uh, uh, work that we will do later looking for leadership on things. By the way, one of the two women who came in to see me back way that when, was at a dinner that I was at, uh, I don't know, three years ago. And she told me that her daughter was not coming to IU because she thought it was too big. And I said, will you let me have a conversation with her and invite her to the campus? She is now running the dance marathon at IU. So we're into the second generation. But again, it's that exposure to the importance of philanthropy and how it, uh, how it uh, makes such a difference in our country. And uh, it's, it's, it's been such a wonderful journey for me. Yesterday, I had two students in who are active in the program, and, and they're so excited about making a difference. So I live a good love life. Love it. I love it, Kurt. So the, the bulk of your career has been around Indiana University, and we'll spend the bulk of this conversation talking about that. But you did, after that initial stint, um, really get exposure to a variety of regions and program types in a way that, frankly, very few people even today would, would be able to, um, uh, to, to speak to in a session like this. And we're not going to have time to go in depth into all of them, but I'm thinking that we might play a bit of a word association game. So I'm going to name an institution that you worked with in between your first stint at IU and your second and you can just share a word or two that comes to mind as you reflect on the development, the advancement experience at those institutions. The first one on my list is Yale University. Yale University was like going to graduate school in fundraising. Uh, they had information that, that was 200 years of family history connected with you. I'd never seen anything like it, but it underscored the importance of, of putting on paper somewhere that you can understand what the path of this family in philanthropy has been to any of our institutions. But at Yale, you know, it was older than the Republic. So it was pretty, pretty eye-opening for me. Love that history. All right, Tennessee. Tennessee, the word I would say is fundamentals they did the right things in the right way. They built a program on alumni engagement and then an annual fund program. And then from that uh, moved on to more major gift fundraising, but fundamentals. And that was one of the greatest lessons for me. Alabama. Alabama was uh, how important sports can be in fundraising. <laughs> Tuscaloosa is, is, is a, a lot about football. Uh, but it isn't only about football. When I needed help on a gift, we were doing a campaign for the law school actually there. And I needed to reach out to somebody and I asked Bear Bryant if he would help me with that. And he said he would. I only asked him three times uh, in three years that I was there. And he said, sure. And I gave him the name. And the next thing that happened is I didn't get an appointment with the guy because the money came. <laughs> I didn't have to do a thing. But, but the relationship 
that I saw in terms of people who identified with Alabama and the importance of athletics as a window to the institution was, was really pretty revealing to me. Well said, and I might double click on the Bear Bryant comment uh, later on, but let's go to the next institution. I cannot imagine a bigger cultural uh, shift and, and geographic shift than going from Alabama to the University of Oregon. Well, it, the West Coast is a little different, and the Pac-12, Pac-10 at that time was a little different. They were not as advanced as the Big Ten uh, by the time I got there, uh, and it was it was pretty clear that the Big Ten as public universities as a group were out front in raising money. Michigan was out front. Uh, we did our first capital campaign in, in 1970, which is a a long time ago for a public institution. And we were doing it for endowment and we didn't know how that would play with our constituency at all. But I got to Oregon and I found uh, almost a blank slate, but I also found an institution that was really not well nourished by the state legislature. And so about anything we did was going to be a piece of progress. And the first thing we did was have to make the case for private philanthropy at the University of Oregon. And uh, I'm happy to say, that it has really blossomed nicely. You know the name Phil Knight, but Phil is not the only major supporter uh, of the University of Oregon. And by the way, Phil uh, does not give all of his money to athletics. He's a donor that is beyond $100 million to the academic side of the house too. And so again, we're talking about sports and how it, how it leads people to be loyal. And uh, Knight has just been fantastic. But it was almost starting with those fundamentals that I had at Tennessee all over again uh, at, at Oregon. I happened to work for a great president uh, there and um, he probably had more integrity than any, anybody I've ever known ever. And he, I guess he, he made me realize that uh, you respect a president if he respects your expertise. And uh, he did, Paul Olam was his name and Paul, put in my bailiwick the responsibility for, for the pieces that I had. And he did the same thing with his other vice presidents. And so uh, respect among and between leadership of the institution is a big deal. University of California, Berkeley. Playing on the world stage all the time. It was so interesting to be there. Now, as you know, the state of California in those years was really funding the institution at a very high level, over 50%. And you know, we dropped to 20%, we dropped to the teens as far as percentage, but the state of California was doing a great job, which meant they had not developed their fundraising program. They had never had a successful capital campaign when I got there. I got there in 1983, never had a successful campaign. They only had one campaign, it was for athletics and it didn't reach its goal. And so it was the most fertile field I've ever seen in terms of if we had one person that could give us a million dollars, they had a thousand people who could give them a million dollars. So the constituency was wonderful and was sitting there on the sidelines waiting for somebody to organize the campaign. And it did not take long uh, to, to, uh, to activate the thing. When I came in, maybe maybe $25 million a year was, was falling. And when I left five years later, we were well over a hundred million. And now they're at four or 500 million a year, which is fantastic. But uh, the University of California is such a great institution that people want to be associated with it. And the loyalty that I feel and see at Indiana or, or Oregon 
or Alabama for that matter, is, is replicated at Cal. People love that institution mm-hmm. and they feel its impact. I saw that they had two more Nobel laureates this year. And uh, it, it's just a fantastic institution. As I say, it plays on the world stage and it opened my eyes to the fact that people around the world who are graduates of our big public institutions uh, have that loyalty if they're in South Korea or they're in Thailand or, or if they're in Berlin, wherever they are, it's there. And it's up to us to re- reach out to them and, and keep them informed and get them excited about what we're trying to do. What was it like as a kid from Couts, Indiana, who went down the road to college to then get that level of exposure, you know, starting with Yale? And history to UC Berkeley, where it was brand new, uh, it was almost polar opposites, probably in maturity. And then, you know, having uh, different accents, different, you know, perspectives. Um, you really, I'm sure, just had so much exposure to every corner of the United States, maybe the world. You know, every uh, every perspective. Um, was it hard to drop into to different, I don't know, subcultures around the country and, and recalibrate? That's a, that's a very important point you make because I had not seen uh, the diversity that I saw at Berkeley ever before. I, I got wonderful exposure to the Chinese community. I got wonderful exposure to the Japanese community. I got exposure to the Hispanic community I'd never seen before. And the challenge there is to communicate on their terms and to find out culturally where they are and what makes sense to them. The Chinese community takes care of its own. And so a lot of its, its philanthropy is right there at home and they take care of one another. And the challenge for uh, uh uh, a development officer is to say, how can we uh, get them to trust us? And one of the things that was clear to me is we had to look at our boards and our volunteers and say, who do they identify with? And if you did not have on your board somebody who was Chinese, if you did not have somebody who was Hispanic, if you did, did not have, why would they trust us? And so one of the things that I learned at, at Berkeley was diversity matters because it matters to the people that you're trying to communicate with. Now that's, that's super uh, uh, shallow in terms of the way I look at it, the way we should look at it. But the truth of the matter is we have to get on the page of the people that we're trying to communicate with. Now Cal fortunately had a history of, of being an institution where, where the, uh, the Asian cultures could come and get an education. There was not discrimination. It was a place that took more Jewish people earlier than any of the West Coast institutions did. And, and all of those, all of those sub, sort of subcultural groups have resources. And one of the things that we had to do was uh, earn their trust. Just as we have to earn the trust, if you're a development officer, and especially if you're a chief development officer, you have to earn the trust of the deans. They have to believe you. They have to believe that you're gonna help them get something done. One of the things we, we deal with all the time is if, if you have a distributed development operation, those development officers are worried you're gonna steal their prospects. So you have to earn the trust of everybody, whether they're inside or outside. And that, that was really important at Cal, was really important for me at Cal. And, and it's one of those things that is, has, uh, has served me well wherever I've been, including Indiana. So it's the mid-80s, you're at Cal. You just 
crossed the country in your various stops uh, from mature to immature, uh, East Coast, West Coast, Southeast. There's no LinkedIn. There's no cell phones. How did you maintain the relationship with your old friends at Indiana? And ultimately, what was the catalyst to have the opportunity to go back in 1988? Well, I must tell you that when I left, it was to gather the credentials that would cause them to consider me uh, when the job opened up. And in those days, you, you hit it early on. Uh, our profession was, was, was neophyte. And uh, one of the things that, uh, that uh, we wanted to do was figure out what credentialing they would look for in that kind of thing. And, and I must tell you, my experience at Yale was not great. Uh, I didn't fit very well at an elitist institution uh, like that. But, uh, but having Yale on your resume was pretty good. <laughs> and then having Berkeley on your resume was pretty good. Uh, and uh, uh, once I had pro been productive at those institutions, it, it paved the way for, for a move forward. Now, I must tell you, that my youngest daughter never forgave me for leaving Eugene, Oregon. <laughs> she loved Eugene and, and Berkeley was not a, a good fit for her. And she's now there as their, uh, as their uh, uh, technological whiz bang for the libraries at the University of Oregon. And she's never coming back. She loved Eugene. So, you know, as you make those moves, it, it, it has wear and tear on family. Uh, and uh, I, I must say at times, I think I was selfish to pursue those opportunities. But uh, in the end, uh, we're still friends. <laughs> we still love one another. And uh, I go to Eugene every year to spend time with her and she comes back and all the rest of it, uh, all the rest of it's bits. So I don't know if I answered that last question very well. <laughs> oh, absolutely. When you got back to Indiana in 1988, you had the opportunity to lead the foundation. You had left uh, in, um, in 1971. The world had changed, uh, technology had changed, the sector had maybe started to mature a little bit. How different did the organization feel relative to when you had left? When I left, it was, it was a, a one or a two-man shop, a uh, two-person shop. I would say the foundation when I left was probably not more than 25 employees, and that's everything. The financial side, uh, the investment side, the, the accounting side. Uh, the legal side. In fact, it was probably less than 20. Uh, and when I got back, it was more like 150. Uh, and they had come out of another capital campaign. They were just at the point of coming out of a, a capital campaign that really was successful. Uh, and one of the core people in that was, it was the greatest president I think I've ever uh, been exposed to is Herman B. Wells. And Wells was of the generation of Ted Hesburgh. Uh, and they were very close friends. And he had that kind of impact on our alums that was fantastic. And so when I came back, uh, he was on the search committee. Uh, by that time, he was probably, oh, he was probably uh, in his late or mid 80s at the time, but he was so respected. And so I went to him and I wanted to visit with him about what he saw and what he thought. Uh, we had a good-sized board of directors. I could go to them and talk with them about what they saw and what we seemed to need. And uh, they saw some weaknesses and in our infrastructure. 
uh, in our systems uh, that uh, that could cause us trouble if we didn't if we didn't uh, put them uh, uh, put the board at ease. But but I had a great board. The the thing that one of the things that struck me though was we had thirty eight members of the foundation board. Thirty six were white males, and they were of almost the same generation. Uh, that's not surprising. Uh, we had the same thing at Berkeley. Uh, we had the same thing at Oregon, and it was it was uh, part of your 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 education is to realize we're just missing the boat uh, in terms of engaging people if we don't engage uh, the female side of things, and even in couples arranging people. Our most successful board, I think, at IU right now is our board of directors, a board of visitors for the art museum. We've put couples on that board. And it has really been wonderful. Back to the foundation. So when I got there, I said, where are the women? Uh, who are the women that we should be uh, bringing onto this board? And I didn't get a knowledgeable answer, except for one person. Bill Armstrong, who gave me my start, said, you should talk to this lady who lives in Cleveland. Her name is Barbara Jacobs. I think she'd come on the board. Well, where did Barbara Jacobs from? Bill Armstrong was a great baseball fan. She owned the Cleveland Indians. <laughs> she and, her, she and her, her husband and brother owned the Indians. And that's how he knew them. I went to see her. She did say yes. And that, that began our journey to get some gender balance on the board. We had the same issue with, with uh, diversity. And I reached out and we, we added to, to the board uh, multiple uh, African-Americans, uh, uh, Asians, and um, but most importantly, women, and got them engaged, in, and it changes the whole conversation. Uh, if if your spouse is not interested in what you're doing, uh, you're not going to get as far as if she or he is interested. Uh, fortunately, Barbara's husband David was wonderful about supporting her as a member of the foundation board. He was a graduate too, as well, and that led to David Jr. And well, they made a major gift to endow the, the, the music school because David said to his mother when she said, what do you want for your birthday? He said, I want you to give enough money so that they'll name the music school under, for my dad. Well, he's doubled that giving already as the, next, as the next generation, which is another cue for us. We have to think family-wide when we think about philanthropy. Uh, it isn't just this generation, it's the next generation and the next generation. And if we get to that uh, and we have that kind of trust, then we end up with, with legacy giving. Uh, and it's, uh, it's been exciting. Again, uh, IU has been so good to me. I, I can't begin to tell you that they welcomed me back the way they did. And frankly, I did have the credentials. When you think about all of those visits you've done over the years, you know, those individual donor conversations, mm -hmm. whether it was at IU or elsewhere, do you remember any that went particularly poorly where things just went off the rails? Because I think we can learn from mistakes and you're <laughs> laughing, so I can't wait. Uh, and then after that, I'm going to ask, on the other hand, are there any that went way better than you expected. And I didn't give you these questions in advance, so I'm putting you on the spot a little bit. A but problem. what are some of the visits that really stand out? The well, ugly ones and the great ones. Well, it's, sometimes they're mixed together because one of the challenges is if you have a bad visit, you have to figure out where you go from here. Uh, Mike Heyman, who is the chancellor at Berkeley, and I went to see Wally Haas. 
And this was uh, Levi Strauss and company. He was the head of the family. And we were raising money for the biological sciences. And we knew that if we could raise $50 million, the state would put in $50 million to revitalize uh, the, the biological sciences, the life sciences. And so we went to Wally and, and there's a great rapport. The family over the years and the decades has been extremely supportive of, of Cal. And, uh, and it, was, it, was a, it was a wonderful visit. We knew it would be a cordial visit. We asked him if he would give us $15 million for the biological sciences. And he looked at us and he said, well, you're right. I should make a leadership gift. I'm, uh, our family should do that kind of thing. But I have no interest in the biological sciences. I have none at all interest in the biological sciences. I'm interested in athletics in the business school. And uh, then what do you do? The chancellor turned white. <laughs> and uh, and it, our job as a development officer is to, to figure out where do we go when something happens that is not uh, what we hoped would happen. And we ended up with- Because to be clear, you really thought, I mean, you went into that meeting confident or Absolutely. pretty optimistic. Absolutely. We knew we would get a gift and, and we needed to focus it. Well, we left the meeting with $5 million unrestricted that we could put into the biological sciences. But if we reached our goal without that money, we could, we, Wally could change it to something else. So we were working with what his interests were and trying to figure out where to go. Well, we ended up exceeding the goal without his money. And he ended up, the family ended up giving about $40 million for athletics and business. It's the Haas Business School. It's the Haas Pavilion. And we end up way ahead by listening to what his interests were, which is one of the weaknesses that we have. We tend to talk when we should be tending to listen. In fact, I'm going to give... Uh, I'm going to move back over to the headquarters of the foundation now. They've invited me to come back because I'm old enough that I'm not a threat to anybody. But I, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that, uh, that they will let me do a couple of seminars. And the first one is, let's revisit the art of listening. Let's start talking about what it takes to get people to open up to us. How do, we, how do we earn their trust in a way that, that makes sense? There's a book called The Speed of Trust, and it's by Kobe. Uh, his father wrote the seven, uh, seven, uh, seven attributes of highly successful people, but it's called The Speed of Trust and how you build trust. And then the next one is, is the, the, the art of a conversation that gets Wally to do something that you want him to do on his terms that are also on our terms. And that means listening. I think leaving with $5 million unrestricted was pretty good, even though we had hoped for 15. In the end, we got what we what we wanted, which was broader support for the university. And uh, and uh, and and we and we succeeded. So I guess that's that's the one that stands out. The other one that stands out that went extremely well was a man named Jesse Cox here in Indiana. Mr. Cox got in touch with us when we were doing the campaign that was closing down when I came in and said, I'm interested in scholarships. Are you interested in talking to me? So we went and talked to him. He gave us a bunch of property all over the Midwest that looked like it was valued about $15 million. Well, how do you, how do you keep yourself from getting in your own way uh, when you receive gifts like that? This is a, a learning thing. I'm talking way too much. I apologize for this. But anyway, uh, uh, we created a corporation that was owned by the IU Foundation called 
Jesse Cox Incorporated, and we put him on the board. He knew more about that property and what it should sell for than we would ever know. And one of the things we have to worry about is disappointing a donor who gives us something like that and we sell it too early or too cheap or, or if they think of it, well, uh, it was $15 million. We started the Jesse Cox Scholarships. We did uh, two thirds of it for Bloomington, one third for, for Indianapolis, IUPUI. And as I said, he said, if this works, Kurt, there's more money where this came from. Well, we made darn sure it worked. We were getting top quality students that were following what he wanted to do. And one day when, when, uh, when Barbara Jacobs made her gift, it was the income was being matched by the university on, on an endowment gift, which was a wonderful device to get people engaged. And uh, she'd made her gift and I thought the match was gonna be gone before Jesse made his further commitment. So I called him on the phone. I said, Jesse, and we were close enough that it was Jesse and Kurt kind of thing. I said, uh, uh, this is what's going on. And he was silent for a minute and he said, are you telling me that my program could be twice as large as I thought it would be? I said, yes, sir. And he said, you better come to see me. So here's this bumpkin from Couts, Indiana going in there. And I said, Jesse, can you consider $50 million? And he said, no. And I thought, well, that's good. You've blown that one. He said, uh, it's 70 million. I said, 70 million. Is that 55 million on top of what you've given? No, it's 70 million new. So it ended up being all told, $92 million when he passed. And it's just been transformational in terms of IUPUI being able to attract really good students and IU being able to attract good students. I, I, I'll never live to, to have a greater satisfaction in terms of dollar amounts, lots of satisfaction and good things uh, than, than that one. And what we did was listen to Jesse. What year was that? Roughly. It, uh, it came to fruition about 2008. Uh, he had it in trust and we had to have ownership of the trust for the match to occur. This is a, a technique that worked well. And when we had it un irrevocably in, in our hands, the university released the match even before he died. So we were giving scholarships with the match before we got his corpus. So he got to meet all these kids. He got to meet all these students and just loved it. Just got a chance to see the students he was helping. And his point was, what am I gonna do with this money except give it to the next generation in hopes that they will make a contribution that makes the world a better place. That's, that's where he came from. Aren't we, lucky to, aren't we lucky to be in this world where we're, we just spend our time with people who are trying to do something good for somebody else? Kurt, after you receive a gift like that, um, or any, any of these gifts, after as many years and as many experiences as you've had, I could imagine that they could all start to just become numbers, start to blur together a little bit. How do you maintain the connection to the Kurt Simic today from Couts, Indiana, who is 18 and has as much need in 2021 as you did before your freshman year, how do you keep that authentic connection to what has now become hundreds of people in a fundraising organization and schools and units and alumni association and student philanthropy and the foundation? How do you balance the big numbers with the individual impact? Well, the first thing is 
stewardship never ends. Uh, the truth of the matter is uh, people deserve to be respected for what they've done and what they continue to do, even after they've made their, their big gifts. It's, and that turns around in, into, did we do what we said we'd do with the money? Did it have the impact that we said it would have? And did we report back? And so much of it is, is connecting the Jesse Cox with the students that he supported. And, and uh, to me, uh, that's what I've been doing since I retired. I am tending to relationships. And I think we cannot tend to relationships uh, too much. And that means communicating on an ongoing basis. I sent out my, my holiday cards right now. And uh, the face on the card is Herman B. Wells in his Santa Claus suit that he would celebrate with the students. People will remember that and just love it. I know they will. And I write hand notes on 700 of them, but those are 700 people that, uh, that have transformed IU from a philanthropic standpoint. Uh, and it's, uh, it's a pleasure to be able to stay in touch and the foundation giving me the opportunity to tend to those relationships is a gift to me that I can't, I can't tell you how much it means. I love that story. I love it. I mean, look, everybody says stewardship matters, but clearly the foundation is um, investing in, in that in a way that is rare and giving you a platform to continue to um, steward those relationships is, is really uh, compelling and hopefully something others might, might consider. Um, I do have to ask, as I said at the beginning of this episode, you're the most experienced advancement professional that I've hosted. <laughs> um, you started your career um, without a computer, uh, probably with a rotary phone, and you're ending it uh, with me and others on Zoom calls. And you've witnessed many waves of technology adoption. At the same time, you've hinted at uh, or more than hinted at the importance of the basics and the fundamentals and they don't change no matter what the apps are. Um, but that being said, you are now uh, a Zoom link away from all six or 700,000 IU alumni. And that is a new paradigm. And I'm curious as you've had to adjust your work in the midst of the pandemic, if you've been surprised about ways that technology has been able to help. And I said I might come back to the Bear Bryant example uh, because historically to get a Bear Bryant or to get a faculty member or to get uh, an important, um, you know, let's call it a leader on campus to travel with you or to visit a donor was logistically challenging. Scheduling was a nightmare. You gotta be very judicious with those asks which is why you only asked Bear Bryant a couple of times for That's that right. assist. But when you did, it worked. And we have heard countless stories during the pandemic and, and, and to where we are now, where being able to bring in faculty members, bring in students into a Zoom conversation with the Jesse Coxes of the world has really been transformational in being able to personalize stewardship in a more scalable way without necessarily getting on planes and dealing with all those logistics. Have you experienced that? Where do you stand on the role that technology has today and how that's evolved throughout your career? 
Well, uh, of course, it's evolved from <laughs> writing on note cards to to where it is today. And so, and I am a techno peasant. I'm not the best thing in the world as far as technology is concerned. But I but I I have the good sense to talk to people who are. And when I need the help to whatever kind of reach out that we do, I, I get it, which is uh, which I'm uh, very grateful for. But one of the things that technology has done is it's it's given us the opportunity to penetrate the market more fully. And that's the pool of potential donors. Uh, Dan Smith, who has just retired as president of the foundation and JT is stepping into his shoes, was was a marketing professor in our school of business. And he was brilliant uh, at that. And so he brought that, that ability into the foundation. And now they're talking about over the course of the of the of the campaign that they just ended they had more than 250,000 donors 250,000 donors over a period of what eight years or whatever whatever the 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 length of it was and that's technology and knowing how to use it in a way that doesn't make you feel like oh it's another spam and all the stuff that we get it just it wears you out it wears me out just to to delete things in things, but how do you how do you reach that? And I think the way you reach that is take what what Dan did, which is understand marketing, and find a way to make it live by testimonials from students, testimonials yeah. from faculty, testimonials from donors. Why did you do this kind of thing? And we can't forget. For me, the best lesson was as I was a student that somebody talked to me and taught me a little bit about philanthropy. That's why these dance marathons and little 500s and all these other organizations are so critically important. We have to do it while we're here, while they are here. And the other thing we have to do, one of our pieces of the market is non-alumni parents. And we've only got those students uh, to work with for a very short period of time. So how good are we at communicating with those parents? And what we're finding is, they don't necessarily want to stay on boards or be on boards. What they want to do is when they come to campuses, see their child. And what we've got to talk to them about is what enriches that student, their child's experience at IU. And, uh, and we're finding a receptive audience as among non-alumni uh, uh, parents. So I go back to the marketing piece of it. And Dan equipped himself with really good people to add to his, his, uh, his, uh, uh, his, uh, a quiver, if you would, of opportunities to reach out. And he just did a wonderful, wonderful job. Now what we've got is all those big numbers. Now we have these people who've raised their hands. We have to find out which ones have capacity to endow a chair, endow a scholarship program, whatever, and then go to see them. Uh, yeah. We can do a lot of, of, of prospecting within our own donor uh, pool. Now within the donor pool, who do we try to reach to reach out to so that they can do something on their own? We asked you in our pre-podcast questionnaire, what do you think will be or should be the next step forward for the advancement industry? And you wrote, it's not a new step, but repersonalization of fundraising is essential to creating partnerships with people who have the capacity to make transformational gifts. And I think some of what I'm hearing from you is not only is repersonalization important for the high capacity folks, but for everyone such that it gives you an opportunity to then know who might be willing uh, to take that next step. I think that that is uh, extremely well said and, and we share your belief that that's where technology can, can help. Um, but ultimately we, we cannot 
I, I think your point about how much time we have to spend hitting delete every day is a good one. Uh, and I think that the downside of the marketing systems and the email systems is that it's gotten too easy to just hit send without really asking ourselves, is this something I would like to receive as a donor? You know, if I'm a Jesse Cox scholar, is this the way that, you know, what, what will my impression be when I open my inbox? And if it's indifference, we've got to find a way to work harder and, and repersonalize, um, as you said. Well, it's, it's, it's an ongoing challenge, but what we're doing is we're educating a lot of people uh, to be accepting of technology. Uh, and all you have to do is walk across any campus and see that nine out of 10 of them are looking at something in their hands and uh, not talking to the person next to them. So they, they've reprogrammed themselves. We've got a, we've got my wife's granddaughters here as a sophomore. And she, uh, when, when things uh, went to uh, virtual, uh, she, she find out, found out that she kind of likes to go to classes in her pajamas because she didn't have to get up. So she's very used to, to that communication medium. And it's even more and more deeply so in younger people that have just gotten used to it. I think they are educating their parents and their grandparents about this is a tool that you can use. Uh, it doesn't make me happy because I'd rather look you in the eye and talk with you, but that's okay. Uh, if, if it's acceptable to you, then we've got to find the grounds uh, on which it's acceptable to you and, and communicate on that basis. I still say we cannot be uh, getting students in front of donors. We cannot move fast enough to get the faculty member in a conversation. Once we discover the interest, we cannot get those together because that's where the action is. We're the mechanics in some ways, mm -hmm. but, but the inspiration comes from students and faculty that are really making a difference. Very well said. Uh, as we conclude, I have to give a shout out to Pete Rhoda, who's the Executive Director of Development at the IU Libraries. Pete graciously sent me a copy of your book, The Spirit of Generosity, Shaping oh. IU Through Philanthropy. And I just have to ask you what inspired you to write that book. And to anybody listening, you care about advancement or you wouldn't be listening, uh, look up The Spirit of Generosity uh, by Kurt Simic. Uh, it's a beautiful um, history, uh, including some of what we discussed here today. Uh, but ultimately, what inspired you to, to take on that project? Well, the co-author was Sandy Bate, and she's really the brains behind it. What I was the was the access to these people. But Sandy was wonderful, and she came to me along with some others and said, "We need you should do a biography about your career." And I said, "Who cares about me? Let's talk. Let's talk about the donors. Let's talk about the relationships that were that were built in this." And the challenge was limiting the numbers. The head of the IU Press, uh, 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 Gary Dunham, just said, "You can't have more than a dozen people in this thing." Well. We ended up with 13, uh, but, but uh, 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 the inspiration came from talking about relationships, talking about how important it is for this relationship that this person has to Indiana University to be grounded in trust. And uh, I go back and everybody who sees this will laugh when they hear me say this, because if they know me, they've heard it before. The four eyes matter identify who cares, inform them of what you're trying to do, involve them in the process, and they will invest. And the apostrophe S is stewardship. That's all it is.
That's all it is. Can we be trusted? One of the most important roles of the IU Foundation Board is to stand in the place of every donor and make sure every dollar goes where they gave it uh, to support and make sure that that is so clear that it's inviolate. And frankly, the biggest challenge we have is presidents don't ever have enough money to do all the good things they could do. And faculty members come in with great ideas, wonderful things, and they never have enough money. And you know, the state support is, is fungible to a large extent. Tuition money is fungible to a large extent. Uh, overhead money on federal grants is fungible. Gift money is not fungible. And what we've got to do is always stand on that principle and make sure, make sure we can honestly look any donor in the eye and say, this is what your money did. And this is what it's continuing to do because you trusted us to do it. And we did. Kurt, one of the reasons I started this podcast is I thought it'd be a way to get a free education on philanthropy. I feel like <laughs> you've given me one today. The four eyes, I'm going to repeat them. It's identify, inform, involve, invest, steward. Yep. And hopefully everybody can take that with them. Uh, thank you so much for your time um, and for everything that you've done for IU and for the community. Uh, more broadly, your leadership with Case, um, it's really just been a privilege. And I do hope we get to meet in person. And I think based on this conversation, Matthew Ewing, JT Forbes, the little 500 is in my future in some form or fashion. How well, about that? Well, come, it's, it's worth it. And what you see that's is the, the enthusiasm of students working for that. I am honored to have been included this. And let me uh, give a shout out to the names that you just uh, mentioned, but there are so many more who've come through this shop. Uh, I think of uh, wonderful women leading development programs around the country, Jackie Thede at Brunel, uh, uh, Dana Cummings at Franklin, uh, Eileen uh, Savage at uh, the, uh, one of the prep schools in, uh, in, uh, uh, in Detroit. They're all over the place. And what's great is they believe what, it, it didn't come from me. They believe in the, the, the the trust that we have to earn with donors all the way around. Thank you for including me. I'm really honored. And I'm, I'm grateful. And it's a pleasure to meet you and meet anybody who's been to Couts, Indiana. Couts, Indiana. I'll see you there soon, Kurt. Take care. And I look forward to being in touch. All Cheers. the best. Thank you for Goodbye. including me. Bye. Best wishes. Bye.